Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline, and today's episode is called Harry Podcast and the Portkey. Today we will be discussing the implications of Amos Diggory's interaction with Harry, the comfort of repeated language in the series, and comparing different forms of magical travel. The morning after their dinner on the lawn in the last chapter, Harry and gang are woken up by Molly very, very early in the morning to get ready to leave for the World Cup. Harry then learns that while Bill, Charlie, and Percy get to apparate to the cup, um, the rest of them can't because they aren't of age and haven't passed the test. They discuss splinching as a concept and that Percy has recently been showing off by apparating down the stairs. Before they even get out of the door, Mrs. Weasley notices that Fred and George are carrying ton-tong toffees. She forces them to empty their pockets using a summoning charm that they had been trying to smuggle out. Mr. Weasley and the younger kids begin to walk to their location. Um, He explains the complications that the ministry has had to go through for the World Cup to ensure that muggles don't get suspicious. There's a variety of travel methods being used, and the one they're using today is a port key, which is an ordinary object that is set to transport wizards from one spot to another at a prearranged time. They reach the top of Stoat's Head Hill and begin to search for the port key, which is in the shape of an old boot. When they hear someone call out, Arthur introduces them to Amos Diggory, a ministry employee and father of Quidditch captain for the Hufflepuff team, Cedric. Amos realizes during introductions who Harry is and gets excited, but then awkwardly insults Harry about losing to Cedric at Quidditch last year. Arthur changes the subject and then instructs all of them to touch the portkey, which is an old boot, at the appointed time. And at that time, Harry feels a jerk somewhere behind his navel and the wind rushing all around him until they all hit the ground somewhere else. And we hear a voice say, seven past five from Stoat's Head Hill. Okay, so we learn a lot about new methods of transportation in this chapter, specifically port keys and apparition, and we've already learned about flu powder in the past books and just used flu powder last chapter, so I thought it'd be interesting to kind of compare these different types of basically teleportation, which is what we all imagine, you know, would be the best part of having magic or, you know, the technology to do that. And so what do you think are some of, like, kind of the pros and cons of all of these? Like, you know, apparition is obviously the easiest once you know how to do it. And we, you know, it's an immediate. You don't have to have any extra props. Right. Um, but as they talk about here, I thought it was interesting that they talked about splintering right, right away. I forgot that this was kind of introduced so early. I thought it was maybe introduced when they were actually learning about apparition later on. Um But they mention this, you know, right away as like, this is dangerous Mm -hmm. to do, especially if you don't know what you're doing. Well, it's a good explanation of why they need to use a portkey. Right. Um, And so I think it's partially the author trying to justify, you know, why do we use food powder? Why do we use portkeys? Why do we use apparition? Like, what are the, like, what are these different classes of transportation? And like, why do we need all of them? Mm Mm-hmm. And I think flu powder, if you're going from place to place with fireplaces, is clearly the easiest. Yeah. You just use the fireplace and then you get in and you get out of the old, the other fireplace. Um, and it it uh, it can go awry, as we've seen in the second book. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the description of it is kind of like you're spinning really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then theoretically you just fall out at the correct grate. 
Um, but if you misspeak or don't have the right intention, somehow you can follow it at the wrong one. Um, but you port- can do it when, compared to the port key, you can do it whenever you want, in theory. Yes, there's no there's no time restrictions. Mm-hmm. You just need flu powder and you need your fireplace to be connected to the flu network, which is a ministry bureaucracy thing, essentially. Um, with port keys, um, typically they're registered by the ministry, but you can use unregistered port keys, as we see later on in the series. Um, and basically you can enchant any object to take you to a destination um, at a specific time. Or, as with some port keys, at any time it gets touched, it'll just transport whoever's touching it. Mm -hmm. Um, That one seems to be the next easiest to use, but it seems like the magic to use a port key is pretty complex Mm -hmm. and difficult. Um, That one also seems to have the least risk of something going wrong during transit. Mm -hmm. We've never seen a port key fail to take somebody to the correct destination. Um, and, And the description of it is more like you're being carried on a hook. Mm-hmm. to the place where you're going to get dropped off. Right. Um, they all sound very uncomfortable is my yeah. my number one reaction to these. You know, you when you imagine something like apparition or teleportation or whatever, I think, I imagine, all right, I'm just sitting here, and then I just, like, there's a pause, and then suddenly I'm in a different <laughs> location, but not that I would feel... Right. ...something bad, but you I You don't think... want it to, to be a painful or difficult <laughs> no. experience to teleport. But I think it's interesting that, you know, it is in this world that it's not just, like, painless or easy to do all these things. You actually, and we see them, like, all fall at the end of this chapter. Like, it's not, yeah. you know, chill. You're you're probably going to get a little banged up with, with most of these, you yeah, know, methods. Yeah, which I think, I think is, is, is fun. It adds some flavor to the world. And, yeah. And, like, it's not as simple as, like, you would imagine teleportation would be. Like, you are actually, like, kind of flying through the air in a sense. Um the other one being apparition, the other main method of transport, that one seems like the most uncomfortable and mm-hmm. the most difficult. So we haven't um, had a description of what it feels like yet. I think the first description is in the sixth book. Um, when Harry gets taken on side-along apparition with Dumbledore, right. he describes it as feeling like he was being squeezed through a a, an extremely small tube mm-hmm. um, and then coming out the other side. Um, and the idea of splinching yourself, um, these are all ways to kind of tell us how difficult and uncomfortable it is. Um, and so this is why some wizards prefer to travel with port keys or flu powder or even brooms. Brooms being the probably the, the safest way mm-hmm. to travel if you right. know how to fly. Um, and if you're not going to fall off your broom, then it's the easiest way. And, and it takes the longest. But um, I think, you know, if, if it were me, I, I probably wouldn't want to apparate. I'd probably want to use either a port key or flu powder or flying. Yeah. Um, because it just seems too risky and too uncomfortable to right. operate. And while we're talking about it, you know, one thing that we thought was interesting was the description of the description of language. Um, you know, we we have that memory of like apparition squeezed through a tube. We remember that because um, it, the language is always the same for the descriptions of using a port key, using right, flu powder. Very consistent. Yeah. Um, very consistent. Usually, there are certain words. So, like the port key there's usually like the jerk behind the navel right um flu powder like spinning spinning yeah. you know rushing like they're all they're all sort of similar in, to each other but each one has their distinctive language and i think that's interesting because it's maybe not very creative or good at writing but i do think that there's something that is really good about that because it is comforting to have the same expected language and it also helps us 
remember like we you know i think it gives us a sensation that these things are different yeah like we're talking about and there's different risks with each of them and there's different feelings and we can kind of recall other times that they've used those methods in the past Mm -hmm. and i think it's also important to note that for example in this book when um harry and cedric touch the the port key at the end of the triwizard tournament um we don't know that it's a port key when they touch it. Right. So the fact that the description is so similar to yes. this description of them using a port key. That's true. That, that you know, through a whirl, a howl of wind and color, a jerk behind the navel, like all these things that are the same descriptions is for us, the reader, to be like, oh, so he realizes that what he just did was such a port key. Yes. And that's what we know too. So now he's being transported somewhere by a port key. Yeah. So we don't need a description of like... Harry realizes that this is a porky, yeah. and now we're here because right, it's showing, not so telling, else. but it's showing it in in kind of a very clear way, as opposed to like maybe a more subtle way. And it's an interesting, you know, obviously we don't know exactly how everything was planned out, but I would expect that part of the reason why this is here is in this chapter is pretty much to set up the Quidditch World Cup. You know, I think that mm-hmm. it's an interesting you know, type of transportation and they obviously have to get to the world cup somewhere, but, um, I think it's probably happened now so that we can remember it later when they touch the cup. Definitely. Definitely. It's, it's all to set up, um, that exact scene and for us to already know what a port key is. So I think, um, Harry has a really fun conversation with Arthur and they talk about a lot of different things, including methods of transportation and splinching and things like that. And I, and I really love, the two of them together. I mm-hmm. love their relationship because I think that Harry's innate curiosity and like uh, unfamiliarity with the wizarding world and their technology is a really great mirror image of Arthur's sort of similar curiosity about the muggle world mm-hmm. and muggle technology. Um, and because they are so different, like they're able to have like these really long detailed discussions about their respective worlds mm-hmm. and, and their technologies. Um, despite their age difference, I think they make a very fun pair of friends. Basically. Yeah, they are. I think they're, they have a nice relationship and it's, you know, obviously Harry doesn't have a dad. It's not really a dad relationship, but it's sort of like, it's a, kind of like an uncle, uncle, like mutual. They have like some mutual respect for each other in a yeah. way that's, that's nice. But Arthur is also not, you know, he's not trying to parent him, not trying he's... to parent him, not trying to dote on him like a famous person or, or like Molly, like Molly is like, <laughs> upset. you know, it's, it's a nice relationship that he can have. And, um, it also helps us obviously, because we as readers are also wanting to know about all these fun details in the wizarding world and so we can do that through their conversations yeah whereas when arthur is curious about muggle tech for the reader that comes off as funny Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because how could you not know about electricity that's right you know um but when harry is curious about wizarding tech that is like us as the reader we are right there with him because we also are unfamiliar with this world um and so that's that's uh i think there's an interesting dichotomy of those two conversations but they are i think in effect very similar from an outside neutral observer. Right. And oftentimes, um, you know, not necessarily with Arthur, but um, Hermione and Ron, and especially Ron, will be, like, kind of laughing at Harry and saying, like, you, you know, how can you not know this? <laughs> kind of in the same way that we feel about electricity. Like, sometimes Harry will be like, what's that? And they're like, oh, this is like... Everybody knows about you that. You know, like, this is like something else that's Haven't baseline. Haven't you read Hogwarts A History? <laughs> yeah, like, um, or, you know, you don't know what, like, a howler is. Like, you don't know, like, all these things yeah. that are so normal in their lives. Um, 
And we also learn a lot about the Wizarding World, not just these kind of fun details, but just in general how it's set up And um, in this chapter when they're discussing, okay, um, 100,000 wizards. I get, So that is quoted in there, I guess, yeah, as yeah. the amount of wizards that are expected to come to the World yeah, Cup. Yeah, which is massive. I, it's like filling the whole stadium in Barcelona, the football stadium. Yeah, huge. Um. And, and there's only a handful of uh, stadiums in the world that can seat that many people, right. even in the muggle world. Right. Um, so the idea that the wizards can hide this many people, I think, says a lot about uh, about the world. So first, you know, we don't know how many wizards there are. Um, mm-hmm. And Hogwarts seems like a poor indicator. But based on this information, we can infer that the world's population of wizards is much greater than 100,000. Right. Most people peg it at about a million wizards. Um so that, you know, the second thing that it implies is that wizard governments are really good at organizing travel, logistics, between each other, yeah. coordinating between each other, which implies that they have really good diplomatic relations, um, that they're able to organize all this, you know, for, for this tournament, essentially every four years. Um, and, and yeah, so I think, you know, that, that says a lot about the way that wizarding societies work and how they interact with each other. Mm-hmm. We don't hear that much about foreign wizards, except in this book, like right. during, you know, during... Essentially, the World Cup and then the Triwizard Tournament is really the only time we hear that much about foreign governments. Um, but they clearly all work together really well, at least at this point. Right. And I think that kind of foreshadows and reflects a little bit about, like, Dumbledore's words at the end of this book and sort of his philosophy through the rest of the series is, like, you know, the world of wizards needs to unite in order to defeat Voldemort. Like, we can't defeat him on our own. Right, right. Um, and, and Harry can't defeat him on his own. Um, he needs to unite with other people. And ultimately, I don't think that many foreign wizards even participate in the war against Voldemort. No, doesn't seem um, like it, I guess. But, uh, you know, that, that I think surely was the idea behind Dumbledore's thinking that, you know, it was going to be important to build a collective resistance and not just like a um, Britain against everybody else kind of thing. Yeah, and it is, I guess... We don't know too much about this in terms of when Voldemort was first in power, but it sort of made it seem like he was a worldwide threat and not just Britain. Obviously, he was focused there, but, you know, we don't know details about, like, his travels and things that he did, but it's kind of implied that there was, that all wizards know about this and were somehow affected by Yeah. His reign. Anyway. Unlike unlike Grindelwald, though, I don't think Voldemort's reach ever extended beyond the British Isles. Okay. Like it, there, there may have been efforts for him to conquer other areas, but it seems like he was mostly restricted to to ruling Britain at the time. Um, unlike Grindelwald, who obviously controlled a lot of Europe during his war. Um, and and that's I think partly why Dumbledore felt so compelled to act at that time. Um, was because it wasn't just about yeah. you know, one society, it was everybody. And he felt like he needed to come together with everybody else. There'll probably be some version of that in the uh, Fantastic Beast series of films at some point. <laughs> um, so far, it hasn't really come out. But uh, I'm hopeful that the future ones might be better. Um, we also see in this chapter, I think, a really good interaction between Harry and uh, other wizarding adults that aren't as big fans yeah, of his. Yeah, Amos Diggory. Um, yeah, so Amos Diggory is a really interesting guy. I think one of the more interesting characters we've seen in the series, of course, he's not characterized that well here, but he does get better characterized as we go along. Um, his reaction to Harry at first is is surprise and shock and, and like, 
Almost uh, a little bit. Yeah, it's like you're meeting a celebrity. Yeah, you're meeting a celebrity. But also it's like you're meeting a celebrity and isn't it so cool that my son beat mm-hmm. you at Quidditch? Something that no one else has ever done. Yeah, it's it. he's very... Um, he, this is not an interaction that Harry's had before that we know of. Where with, someone's giving him like a backhanded dig or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's not... Usually they're like either you know just very kind of respectful and standoffish or like very fawning fawning. and you know it's he doesn't like we've talked about in the past he doesn't necessarily deserve this fawning and he feels uncomfortable with it because he's like i don't know i was a baby this is weird right i think he's also uncomfortable in this situation though but this is uncomfortable and he goes even you know i remembered kind of this interaction Mm -hmm. but the part that really stuck me i was like oh he's going for it is that you know cedric kind of is trying to be uh, nice and kind and say like you know harry like fell off his room and like humble. it wasn't really fair yeah he's yeah. humble he's he is we get that and kind of his hufflepuffness comes out yeah strongly believes in being honest and humble and fair play at the time when harry fell off his broom cedric tried to call the game off and, right. and wanted a rematch because he felt like the dementors interfered with his fair competition yeah um and we'll never we'll never know who would have won that match had harry not fallen off his broom but, you know, Cedric definitely feels like he was cheated out of a fair contest. Yeah, and he doesn't and so want So he's that. not particularly proud of that achievement. And obviously we'll see much later, um, you know, how they work together in this way. Because they both want things to be fair. And then, yeah. you know, really get there at the end. But, um, I, I, so anyway, after Cedric kind of defends Harry, Amos is like, yeah, but, you know, you didn't fall off his broom. One guy falls off his broom. Another guy doesn't fall off his broom. Like, who's better, basically? <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's like, you know, he really, he he keeps at it to be like, you know, but Cedric, you're still the best. And like, this yeah. is not. He doesn't take Cedric's hint that he doesn't want to talk about it. He's he's still like expressing his pride in his son in that way, um, even if it's hurtful. And I think that's uh, a decent first characterization of, of Amos. Um we we will see a lot more of his character later on, though. Yeah, and I think it, you know, even though this is uncomfortable for Harry and everyone, I think it also just characterizes, like, he loves his son. He's very, very proud of his son. Um, and it does, you know, bring in later so much more pain. And, like, Harry feels that as well. Mm-hmm. Like, he knows that he doesn't want to tell Amos. He doesn't want Amos to know what happened to Cedric because... He knows how much he cares. And yeah. um, so that, I, I think that's, you know, why, again, why this was developed in this chapter and why we needed to meet them early on. How would you define their relationship as a father-son pair? Um, and, and how would you compare it to other father-son relationships that we've seen in, in the book, this, in the series? Um, like, let's say like Lucius and Draco Malfoy, for example, or James and Harry Potter. Yeah, I mean, we haven't seen very many, obviously, um, which is, you know, part of the thing. But I think, you know, Arthur has a fine relationship with Ron. He just has so many kids. He's just, it's sort of all, he's just very, like, everyone, you know, don't cause too much trouble. Um, Lucius is obviously very, um, Lucius is, wants sort of wants to be like this i think type of relationship yeah where he he's wants like, to be proud of draco he's like draco is the best i want to be proud but he also you know doesn't know how to to do that and is also very rude to draco when i, I think uh, part of it is that he he wants to be proud of him because he wants him to be the best 
Mm-hmm. But instead, he turns that into shame yeah. when Draco isn't the best. Like, yes. even if Draco came second place, Lucius would still be ashamed of him. Yeah, he has no... He he just uses Draco as this kind of, like, pawn and feeling At least for of, now, yeah. Of he, now of... They develop more of a real relationship later on um, once Draco gets put in real danger and so does Lucius. Right. But, yeah, I'd agree with that. I think James and Harry is, an, is another interesting pair because... Um, I mean, we Harry, don't know that their relationship very much. Well, just in terms of, like, the way that each of them are as people. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, James is gone. But when Harry learns more about his father for the first several years, he's like, I want to be just like you. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to live up to that image of, that people have of my father. And then uh, and then when he learns some not-so-nice things about his father, it's kind of the opposite. It's like, I want to separate myself from that and and be a different person. Um, which is kind of how Cedric is being with Amos now. Yeah. When he's like, I'm not like you. I'm not going to be prideful about this. Mm-hmm. Like, I value different things than you value. Um, and I think Harry is still trying to learn that you can be different from your father mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and that you're not boxed into this idea of them. Like, at this point, Harry is still trying to live up to the ideal. Um, That's true. Yeah. And next book, he's so damaged by that ideal coming crashing down that it threatens his own identity of himself. Right. Um, and, and what he thinks of as things that are valuable about himself. He's mm-hmm. now questioning those things. So I think that's um, it's interesting to note what this relationship is like and, and how they are different and similar in different ways. Other just small things in this chapter. Um, we're introduced to the summoning charm when Molly uses it to rid Fred and George mm. of all of their yeah, toffees. Um and they mentioned the Lovegoods uh, as being True. one of the two other families, along with the Fawcetts, who are are in the area but but are not coming to the World Cup. Right. And I think Rowling does this pretty skillfully. Um, she introduces a character, you know, sometimes one or two books ahead of when right. they actually introduces a character. She just name drops them, like Sirius Black in the Philosopher's Stone. Mm-hmm. He just gets name dropped by Hagrid as like being someone that he lent his motorbike to Hagrid. Right. Um. And then, you know, obviously a major character in Prisoner of Azkaban. Um, uh, the titular character, in fact. And, and then um, Luna Lovegood, not mentioned by name here, but by last name, mm-hmm. will become a major character next book. Um, so I think it's very clever. It, it sets us up so that when we see that name again, mm-hmm. it is that kind of like spark of recognition of like, oh, yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of things it feels already. feels more real. It feels more lived in. It does. And there's a lot of things already that we've seen like pay off in that way. But I think this book is like where you know like we've talked about how this is a turning point in a lot of reasons and i think that all these seeds get planted in this book like pretty much for the whole series like there's a, almost all the seeds are already planted now in this book by goblet of fire yeah. yeah i agree that's part of why i love it so much is every other book that you read after this you know you always are looking back at goblet of fire and saying like when was that seed planted when right. was this seed planted and they pretty much all were there are a few exceptions but yeah definitely a lot of the most important things are established here thank you all for listening to harry podcast and the port key we hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter if you have thoughts or questions about anything we've discussed today especially amos and cedric please email us at contact at the you can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at the or on apple podcasts Stay tuned for next time when we meet new friends in Chapter 7, Bagman and Crouch. I'm Madeline. And I'm David, and we'll see you next time on the Harry Podcast.
Nux.